we do in the winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 56th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Derbeg in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Duncan Brown, formerly of Tobermory. I hope this finds you happy and well wherever and whenever you be. In this episode, Duncan talks about growing up in Tobermory in the 70s and 80s and the role that sports and fun played in his youth. It's so good to hear about this aspect of life in Tob, as I'm sure it'll bring a lot of memories back to life for many people, whether you're from here or not. We talk about football, bogey racing, which brought a huge smile to my face, the rally, and lots more. Duncan gives a great account of what it's like to be in a rally car, the sensations, the smells. He paints such a clear picture, it's an absolute delight to hear it. And if you want to see the rally map for the bogey race of 1980, and indeed the pace notes, please do see the episode website. It's one of my favourite extras ever for this podcast, so thank you so much, Duncan. We then go on to talk about Duncan's working life in engineering, his training and travels. As requested by Duncan, there's a slightly more industrial version of the What We Do in the Winter theme at a certain point in the episode, to reflect his work in the oil industry. At certain points in the episode, you can also hear my family running around in the background, stomping about and having fun, so I'm sorry about that, I hope it's not too distracting. Duncan and I were able to record this at my house when the COVID restrictions were lifted during the kind of late summer of 2020. It was so nice to actually be sat together and chatting. How we all long to get back to those days. If you're listening to this as it goes out on Thursday the 21st of January 2021, we've got a What We Do in the Winter live event online on Zoom tomorrow evening, Friday the 22nd of January at 8pm with the focus on sport. More details can be found on the episode webpage. You can get a ticket there through our Eventbrite link or you can have a look on social media. Interestingly, I think this is the first second generation episode of the podcast that we've got as I've previously spoken to Duncan's mum, Olive Brown, back in episode 13. Without further ado, I'm chuffed to bits to pass you over to Duncan Brown. Who are you? <laughs> uh, well, I'm Duncan Brown. I grew up in Tobermory. Um, my family been here, I think I'm the fifth generation on my father's side. And now I live in a place called Kershalton, which is uh, southern suburb of London, greater London, just inside. Fantastic. So um, I don't know if I'm a mullach or not. I'm going to leave those definitions to other people. <laughs> I think you are what you feel in your heart. I think that's what do for me. Yeah, I'm going to be. Danish today because they're great. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up in Tobermory. That's right, yeah. yeah. So my dad's family, most people know Brown's shop in the main street, so that's my father's side. We moved here when I was nearly two years old. So I was actually born in Colchester in Essex and uh, my dad and mum came back to take over the shop when my great uncle Alan was planning on retirement. It's a fairly extended handover, but yeah, we, we moved via a few months in Carmanach near Glasgow and a few months in Tyree, and eventually landed in Tobermory, rented a house, and then moved into Stronsall, which is a kind of family house over by the Western Isles. And so the Tyree, there was a brown shop in Tyree. There was. Uh, What's well, your memories of that? There yeah. were two, actually, for a short period. Really? Initially, there was one in Balmartin, which is way in the south of Ireland, near, near Hainish. 
Um, and our memories of that, so we used to go out for two or three weeks every year. The guy, the family that managed the shop would go away on holiday and we'd go over and run the shop while they were away, hopefully. And uh, we had a house there as well that was rent out for a holiday house the rest of the time. And yeah, the, the memories are the smell of seaweed. Yeah. The, the, the beach. Yeah. I mean, the house was literally on the high water line. Wow. So you'd look out the window and there'd be seals. Growing up in Tobermory, we're in the town, really. So yeah. this was proper countryside. There were yeah. people with cows in the, in the buyers next door on both sides, and we'd go and milk them and just going out all day playing on the beach, having fights with Tangle, my brother. And we used to go to school there for a couple of weeks as well, which which wasn't quite so good because we were kind of outsiders, you know. Yeah. Um, in fact, I got the belt in Tyree Did you? primary school. Yeah. What for? Uh, apparently talking. <laughs> Maybe the teacher was just in a belting mood that yeah, day. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been. Um, and I never got the belt again until I was in high school, so that was a... Didn't, that part of it wasn't so great, but... Yeah, yeah so the shop in Balmartin was... There's a kind of almost like a wee square with a, with a garage and petrol pumps in the shop, and the manager lived above the shop, and um, everybody knew everybody else, even more so than in Tomori. Yeah. And then there was another shop in Crossapol near the airport, which... Our family took over, ah. and we gradually moved everything to that shop in Crossville. And then, right. after some years, the McLeods that managed the shop for us there, they, they bought it, and I think they've recently um, sold it, perhaps even to the community. I'm not sure. There's a lovely shop there, certainly. Um, yeah. uh, in fact, there's that that book about golf that Derek wrote. Right, is in there. I'm sure. Ah. That's the only time I've ever seen that book, and it was <laughs> um, yeah, it's in. in is that, that the nine hole? Something like book, that. Yeah. 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 Uh, I was like, oh, aesthetics book. <laughs> Sounds like a good book to research for a golf fan. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, yeah. it might still be there. But yeah. I'm trying to think of the last time I was in Tyree. I think it was about 2000. Went out for a wee trip. And of course, things are familiar, but yeah. a little bit different. Yes. And I think like many of the islands, it hadn't quite picked up on the tourism prosperity. Obviously, the windsurfing was a big yeah. thing. And the music, the kind of music aspect of Tyree hadn't really taken off. So it was before the music festival. And, yeah. But yeah, it's it's really different. But I guess I see that when I go down the Rossamall. Yeah. It's different. Yes. And it always surprises me. I expect the whole of the west of Scotland to be exactly like the north end of Mall. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. Which is great. This, yeah. is, this is exactly, yeah. yeah. The, uh, growing up in Tobermory principally, what are the key features you remember of life in Tob? What were the winters like? What were the springs like? What did you look forward to in the seasons? Yeah, well, summer holidays, I think we looked forward to the summer holidays, mainly because mum and dad are busy in the shop, so you'd be, have a lot of freedom. Yeah. Spent a lot of our time hanging about the park in Tomori. All right, okay. Uh, playing football, playing in the, the swings, and you'll probably have heard that the pitch had a fair slope on it yes. then, so it was really good for riding your bike and making jumps. Ah. Um, in the summertime, we'd be down the street a bit more, maybe go up swimming in the in the river, but... Uh, there was a couple of pools yeah. called the Little Black Pool and the Big Black Pool. Okay. And I think they're kind of behind Riverside. Yeah. Up there towards what is now Skibrua Biscuit Factory. Yeah. So we used to go there quite often after school if it was warm for a swim. And then as we got bigger, maybe explore further to Aris Park and our bikes and try not to get into too much trouble. So what bikes are a fantastic thing for young people. What did that offer you in terms of freedom? What was that like having that liberty? Yeah, it's just the distance. It's, you know, <laughs> that was the thing. Was get, being able to, when it never came really as far as here over in Dervig very often, or I think um, 
a friend Alan Noble and I once we cycled to Salon. It was actually on uh, Charles and Diana's wedding day. All right. Everyone else was locked inside watching the telly, <laughs> and we cycled to Salon. And then we realised that was quite far. Yeah. So we cycled back to Zara's Bridge, and we found uh, we found somebody working there. I think it was Hugh McGuinness, and he gave us a lift back in his pickup. But yeah, so we used to go places like Lindu and up Lochnamil and around Aris Park. Skabrua at that time when we were growing up until it was what, 16 or 17 was a ruin. So oh, of we course, had, yeah. um, we had bike races and go-kart races and stuff around there. And then the Reeds moved in, I think. You know, I was probably about 16 or so when, when they moved in. And so you've you raised a very important question. Um, go-kart or bogey? Bogey. Ah, thank bogey. you. Thank you. Sorry, I'm still speaking in my London <laughs> exactly, dialect. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> a bogey for the yeah. listeners. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, t- t- tell me about your bogeys, not the running ones, but the kind of like, <laughs> what were they like? What did you what did you make them from? So, wood, right. wooden frame. Sometimes there might be perhaps an old school chair base as a seat. All right, okay. Uh, pram wheels. Oh, fantastic. Um, so a bit of suspension from a, from some. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and a brake would just be a bit of wood with a fulcrum on it and you just... Um, a bit of rope for steering. Fantastic. There'd be two kind of bogey rallies, as we uh-huh. call them. That, um, so the rallying started at that age? <laughs> wow. <laughs> There'd be the unorganised one, mm-hmm. which we just did ourselves. So we started at Craig Spear, uh-huh. way up the top of Tomori. Whoa. And finished at the bottom of the prison bray. And the route was always... Come down Craig Spear and you hang a, hang a right at um, what was Donald Cursops. Yeah. And down the lane that comes out at Kirk Cottage. Yeah. And then you went down a wee lane that we called Coombers, which is kind of down the side of Staff Cottages. Oh, yeah, that really steep one. Yeah. Wow. So it's a really rough track and uh. it goes from kind of the, the graveyard gate. Uh-huh. And that came down at the bo- bottom of the, the fire station. And then you go back up to the exchange. Uh-huh. And then down the top of the prison bridge opposite Scout Hall. Glenny Show. And then from there, it's incredibly dangerous. I was just, that's it's really steep. steep. Yeah. yeah. I remember one of the, one of our colleagues who's gone on to compete in the main rally many, many times, cracking his head off the cottage at the corner. Oh, there. yeah. Um, <laughs> there were, they, they were bogey rallies that we just decided amongst us we were going to have. Yeah. And then sometimes there'd be more organised ones that, that um, maybe the scouts or a group of right. adults would organise. And they'd be in teams of two. Yeah. So pulling one driving and they'd be around something like Scabrua where there'd be a track at least and at the time the car club were doing some kind of autocross so car racing in the field around right. Scabrua so there'd be some kind of track that is yeah some of it exists there now there's a wow there's a track opposite where the chute was uh-huh that goes up towards the farm and it's all really overgrown now but yeah. it was proper land over track so it was hauling bogies with other kids on them all the way up there that's awesome. Great fun. Oh, Great man. fun. Dangerous as hell. But such as youth. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the scouts there. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the scouts? What who were the main characters in the scouts, and what, what what did you do in the scouts? Yeah. So starting in the cubs, the, the cub leaders at my time were uh, Gare Bryce and a chap called Ian McKendrick, who was, um, I think, he worked for the Hydro Board at the time. So where the cubs would be all over town, tracking was the main thing. Oh, cool. Just like one group would go and. and Walk around the town leaving signs. Oh, nice. Um, and occasionally we go out to Drum Finn. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. Bobby uh, Butters. Aye, opposite yeah. Bobby Butters on the other side of the road, there's a kind of scout campish. Yeah. And 
occasionally a scout group from elsewhere would come and build things. Obstacle courses was the main thing. Oh, so nice. There used to be a really good obstacle course up there. Wow. So sometimes we got there, campfires. And, and then we go away to camps, join with other um, cub groups, maybe, mainly from other parts of Argyle. So the furthest we ever went was Guernsey. Oh my gosh, that's miles away. Yeah, that was um, like the National Jamboree. Okay. We got the train all the way to London and then flew from Gatwick to Cool. The Guernsey. Was that your first flight? Uh, no, no. I think I'd been been on a holiday to somewhere like Benidorm when I right. was very little. Lovely. Yeah, but the first real trip away from home, almost a foreign country without Guernsey. Guernsey. Yeah. Wow. Guernsey. And so there's a big character that I, I'd love to to uh, I, I wish I wish I'd got a chance to spend time with him in the podcast. But Bill Clegg, mm-hmm. can you say about Bill and who he was? Yeah. So so Bill had actually retired from the scouts by the time I got there had he right yeah, okay so it was George Finnegan was ah. the main scout leader and um, a really good guy took us a lot of really good walks George did so we was down in Lochbu the other day and I remember the time that we walked from Carsig to the Nun's Cave oh wow stayed the night in the cave in the cave wow and then walked back to Lochbuie along the shore lumpy lumpy and there's there's places where there's rope access and stuff yeah and then up the Glen went past the three wheel locks and got picked up in Glenmore. Amazing. And that was that was uh, pretty wild, I think. <laughs> but back to Bill, you know, his legacy in, in the Scouts and, and all sorts of other things is wild. So Bill was a good friend of my father's yeah. as well. And their main thing was a golf. Was it? So when I was 12 or 13 or so, Bill used to uh, take junior golf lessons. And I was terrible at golf. And there's a lot of my colleagues, I think, contemporaries were really good (laughs) so I never stuck at it you know but uh, he was a brilliant brilliant teacher a great fun really sarcastic yeah you know on the rare occasions when you'd be sick enough to have to go and see him at the surgery yeah he'd he'd be great he'd he'd, you know make you feel comfortable yeah tell you you weren't really ill yeah (laughs) and then you feel better yeah 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 and then you know latterly as he uh you know get get to know him in different aspects of life He he was really good fun that is lovely. And uh, full of stories, just, you know, from his time in Yorkshire growing up or university or going places with scouts. But I think oh, most of the adventures he took the scouts were maybe the guys that were maybe four or five years older than myself. Right. I've seen a lot of photographs yeah. recently. So Miles has got some amazing ones on Facebook. Yeah, Miles is going through Bill's pictures, scanning them and putting them up. And it's an amazing community amazing asset. It's awesome. Yeah. No, it's a... Uh, I, he was so kind to me when I got here. He was just um, when I used to work at the theatre in Bobby Butter's house. Mm-hmm. He would most days he'd walk past, and quite often I would just nip down and chat to him briefly, and then come back yeah. and go to work. And it was always lovely to see him. And yeah. uh, he was always oh, fantastic. Really. Amazing knowledge of all sorts of things, nature and birds, and sure. and good fun. Yeah, that was the thing. He really was good fun. We've actually got a photograph in our spare room that he took of. Uh, a bird that I'm not much of an ornithologist, but it's a, it's a brilliantly composed photograph, as all his photographs were, yeah. with reflections and mm. golden ripples and everything. Mm. And it's um, you know it's it's up there in the kind of place where we set up an office yeah. in lockdown as our home yeah, working yeah, and everything. obviously a significant thing for your father and for your mother mm-hmm. um, 
I met on the golf course, as she ah, said. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Of course, yeah. So, other sports that were around at the time, though, you, you mentioned the, the football field being an angle. Um, what, what, what sports were accessible when you were younger? Well, f- football was the main one that you could play without any adult supervision. So, you know, as football can be two people yeah. or even one. Yeah, yeah. We used to play Wally at the back of the, you know, just yeah, yeah, yeah. bouncing the ball off the wall. Yeah. at the back of the Western Isles, which yeah. didn't please Derek. We never actually got one of his windows. But at school, there'd be a team with a coach who would usually be a teacher. Um, it started off with a guy called Alan Monkar, who I think was a biology teacher, right. and then became uh, Roddy McKenzie, who was a technical teacher. And there were primary teams. There was a primary league across the island. It's uh-huh. the first time you go places like Loch Don or, hey. or even uh, Benesson or Finnefort. And then at high school team would try and get into things like the Strathclyde Cups who are trying to play against other schools. And how did that go? Uh, not very well because okay. uh, they were bigger schools, they were better, more time for coaching, they had a bigger uh, okay. talent pool or everything. We normally played Tyree home and away like the golfers do. Yeah, of course. And how did you get to Tyree for those gigs? Was that well, on the ferry open? from here. From here? Uh, yeah, just, so of the course. ferry popped in. Yeah. I miss that. I wish that it still happened. Oh, it's fantastic. Well, that's how I knew it was time to go to school in the morning when the Columba came in uh, just before eight and honked his horn. And it was time to get up because it was right, right in front of the house. You yeah, know? yeah. Going to Tyree was easy then. You go on the boat at eight in the morning, you'd be there the back at lunchtime. Yeah. Including a stop in a call. Wow. Um, it's a bit more difficult now. The the one thing that was a really good memory was that because Tomori's big enough to have kind of two teams so we had unofficial Craigan versus Rockfield matches every year Ooh. all summer they weren't fully 11 asides, uh-huh. so there'd be however many you could gather and the home pitch for Craigan was the top half of the what's the playing field where the what do you call it the all weather pitches now. yes yeah. so it was at an angle at the time <laughs> and the Rockfield pitch was where the surgery is no, now, right, there was a car park and a, and a small grass pitch, about, about the size of a five-side football right. pitch. And um, it was always very close. Uh, and all the Rockfield guys will tell that they won every game and all us from this end of the town would say that we won every game. Um, but one of the significant moments was when people moved from one side of the town to the other. So there are two, two groups that there was a little bit of uh, controversy was. So... You know the McIntyres, Kenny and Colin yeah. McIntyres, they were both very, very good footballers right. and they moved from, um, I think they were in the, either, they were in the St Mary's area and moved to Eric Road or, or okay. vice versa. And that was like a transfer. <laughs> that worked not too bad. But then when Ian and Douglas Bowman moved up from the south of the island and they were also both very good footballers and the topic had never been covered but where the boundary between oh, one side of town. Between so, one bedroom and the other, maybe. Yeah, from well, that's what it ended up being. Really? So, I mean, historically, the kind of middle of Tobemone is the burn that goes up from, um, I'm going to say Captain's Table, but it's not called that anymore, Aye, is it? Crystal yeah, Palace. Yeah. Uh, up under uh, the top of the back, Bray. Yeah. You know, it's Mission Estate and Harris Estate, but yeah. they were a little bit further west than that. So I think they ended up that Douglas played on one side and Ian played on the other to keep it even. Very nice. And then on the Rockfield side in the winter, when it was because it wasn't a maintained piece of ground, we used to do kickstart there. That's it. Wow. So it's where we learned all our bicycle handling skills. Awesome. Kickstart on bicycles. Fantastic. And, you know, 
over the weeks, the um, the route would get more and more defined as more and more people are through it, over the wall, uh, into where I guess it's where the McGilts are now, and, yeah. the, and built ramps, and there was a kind of slope on the side, and it was fantastic. That's a proper proper assault course for the bike. Definitely, yeah. Gosh. And these are the things that you wish at least one of you had a camera. Yeah. And recorded it all because there's Aye. when you see some photographs of that era and there aren't many around i know um Colm morrison boffy's been, been yeah. finding some occasionally of him and his brothers doing mad things but that it was just brilliant and it would be this friendly but competitive element between Which whatever you're doing yeah, football yeah. And it's really interesting up. that's always existed in Tobermory, like from what I've seen, I can't, I can't remember if it's Joe Curry's book, but there's one of the books talks or one of the texts online talks about before the proper settlement of the town, there was the two kind of small settlements either side of that burn, and uh, one was not very funny because the other one wasn't very refined. <laughs> They're a bit rough up there, you know. It's like, wow, um, that's extra. Yeah, that's, I guess it's that Cartesian yeah. dualism of the, the the other is always a different thing and. Yeah. Uh, now the town's so big, you, you'd I wonder, know, you know, just... and there's bits of the town develop in chunks. So the, yeah, the bit that opposite Bellskate, there's Strewn Terrace and yeah, so on. Hector's Row. Yeah, all, Hector's yeah. Row. Yeah. It grew very quickly. And, and yeah. the back of Rockfield up to St. Mary's and yeah. I don't know the name of these streets, but it's, you know, goes in bursts. And then yeah. others develop a little bit more organically. So like up the back of Mum's up Airy Road, yeah. each house is built individually. Yeah. But yeah, you have to walk quite a long way now to get to the edge of the town. It's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Alexa's out of the lighthouse now as well. So there's, yeah, yeah there's, you can all go all the way to Martyrs Bay. And yeah. <laughs> so football was very much a core of, of growing up. Um, what, what, what point did you become aware of the rally? Very young. Yeah. Certainly, I've got I've got a photograph of uh, my brother and I and someone else when we were about four or five watching the rally out at Glengorm. You know, it was a smaller thing then than it is now, and it's, mm. it's a dom dominating event of the island now. But um, And there wasn't so many local people taking part. But then that would be just watching, yeah. you know, Mama or Dad taking us there on the yeah. Saturday afternoon um, to keep us out of the house. Yeah. And then that gradually grew into... So one of my best friends growing up was a, a chap called Kevin McIver, whose mother is Bunty yeah. McIver. So um, Kevin... They lived in a house called Avic, it was just at the back of ours, and um, him and his father were incredibly keen. And they, they went on to compete together many wow. times. So Duncan McIver, Kevin's dad, used to take him and I and a bunch of other kids out all night oh, wow. to go and watch the rally. We'd be, we'd be up at Toastry or Arkaskan or somewhere like that in our pyjamas, six layers of clothes and jackets. Oh, fantastic. Waiting for these cars coming over there. What would you have to drink? What was there? There was a hot orange. What was the... Oh, it would be Bovril or something like yeah. that. And, you know, a Scotch egg or something. Oh. Just. But, I mean, we were so excited. I mean, you, could, you have to get there a fair time before the cars, you know. Yeah, the road closes. Yeah. Well, they weren't closed then. What? No, the roads were open until uh, 1987. Well, that's a bit scary. Yeah. And... Some people used to get fed up with spectating and as you know, as the way the rally works is the faster cars go first and then they yeah. gradually get slower. So they get to a point where they think, I can keep up with him. And they would just drive out of their parking place and try and head home. Oh my god. Never tried that myself, but Ah, oh, that's too stressful. <laughs> yeah. Let's see it. What well, let's give it a shot. <laughs> so I think um, you know, my folks weren't particularly into the rally, so I think they were quite relieved that someone else was gonna take them out. Yeah. Take us out a night. 
Yeah. And then we go and watch the forestry bits in the day down at Lettermore or somewhere yeah. like that or fishing. And then gradually, you know, the interest just grew. Yeah. And I think what, what expanded it for me was that in my early teens, I used to hang about at the garage, which was Duncan McGilps at the time. And he uh, he realised he wasn't going to get rid of me. So he taught me how to use petrol pumps and it was kind, oh, of, kind of a job. Cool. I'm not sure I was very good at it. And didn't break too many things. But anyway, working there at the time were Neil McKinnon and John Mackay and Ian Noble and Angus uh, Duncan's son, sadly passed oh, away, who are not just enthusiastic, but complete experts in everything yeah. to do with cars and rallying. And yeah. other people used to come down and hang out and chat about it. So Ali McLeod or Ketch and oh, those guys that were in the kind of, you know, vehicle transport business. And and just been around these guys that were that knew a lot about it. So, what was the knowledge? What was it that, that was the for a young boy was so wow? Was it the technical knowledge? And if so, what was that? It's a bit of that, yeah. So you're they're talking about cars that you wouldn't see every day. Ah, right, okay, right. So, Talbot Sunbeams. Talbot Sunbeams. So I remember the day that Neil bought a brand new Talbot Sunbeam Lotus. Whoa! Might even have been a Chrysler Sunbeam Lotus FBA sixty V. I think is there. Well, that's a 1980 year. Anyway. Wow. So he brought this car and, you know, occasionally at lunchtime we'd go places. So if there was an errand to run to... Uh, outstanding. But it was a standard road car, so it had normal yeah. kind of road seats and everything. And then it went away for preparation into a rally car. So rally seats and a roll cage and mm. spotlights and no carpets and all that. And I went, well, this is serious. This is some transformation mm. into it. But all that, all that time I wasn't involved in it at all. I was a spectator. An enthusiast, um, Ali McLeod, who mentioned earlier, so he used to get a weekly magazine called Autosport, which was a glossy magazine oh. of um, all kind of motorsport, Formula One rally and world championship stuff. And then when he finished reading them, he'd, he'd give them to me. So I was like in my bedroom going through all these amazing articles and yeah. pictures of, you know, cars competing in the Safari rally in Kenya and things oh, like that. Wow. So far away from yeah. standing to straight in the middle of the night, but very fascinating stuff and, and, you know, really sparked an interest. But then when I moved to Aberdeen to go, so I went to move away when I was 16 to go to college. And one of the first guys I met when I went to college for the first day, it was a guy called Andy Tong, who is, um, he lives up in Aberdeen, but he's over here in Mull a couple of times a year, but always for the rally. Mm-hmm. And he was already involved in the kind of club motorsport scene there. So, um, doing auto tests, which are the kind of manoeuvrability cool. trials, and night road rallying, which is a navigational map based Whoa. exercise at night where yeah. you had to um, move quickly. And then the next year, I, I met Doug Weir, who's who I ended up navigating for many times and Fantastic. became very, very close friends. And he has a house in Tobermory now. So, such is the allure of Mull. My first real involvement, rather than standing sidelines, would be to help with marshalling, so flags, yep. timekeeping. That kind of thing. How did that feel as a responsibility? Timekeeping must have been quite something. You'd always be a buddy to someone that knew what they were doing okay. to start with, and then it was only when they were sure you knew yeah. what you were doing. So, yeah, I mean, we used we used to marshal stuff that was at European Championship level, so not quite the biggest around wow. the world. But the Scottish Rally used to be Scottish International Rally used to be part of the European Championship. Okay. So we'd be popping our head in and writing the time cards on rally stars that we'd only seen read about in yeah. magazines from Finland or seen at BBC know. two after midnight. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then in parallel to being at college, 
I was at Robert Gordon's Institute of Technology, it was a technical college, but there was also Aberdeen Uni University and they had a motor club which was focused on training. Hmm. And the aforementioned Kevin McIver was at Aberdeen University and he was part of that club, so we went along. Hmm. And then more experienced guys were teaching you how to do the navigating, the timekeeping. And that led into actually getting a seat navigating for somebody in a wee night road rally. And was that here or was that? No, that was in, um, in Vururi or somewhere like All that. Right. So what was your first, what was your first um, Mull Rally then? And what was your role in that um, as in the car? So in the car, the first one was 1997. So seven years after it went from a night road rally into a closed road stage rally. And I had originally entered with a, with a guy who had been competing with up in Aberdeen, but his car had broke. So I put a wee note on the shop window. <laughs> of course. Navigator available, got my suit and my helmet. Yeah. And a chap from Auburn called Murdo Morrison called up and said, I'm looking for a navigator. Shall we do it? Fantastic. Great. So then what used to happen was that you'd, the rallies are always oversubscribed. So you get a bunch of reserves that are yeah. waiting and waiting to go in case someone else falls out. But nobody did. So we waited on the Friday night. But then you could get back in the Saturday, Saturday afternoon. Right. So we started on the Saturday afternoon and the first stage was upside of Lachtua. And we, we didn't really know each other and we hadn't done any wrecking and the pace notes were given I'd never seen before. Oh, so you didn't have your notes on them yourself? No, I didn't have my own. So we ended up going off the road at the Ace Force Bridge. Oh, you're joking. That's not a good place to go. <laughs> no, off. no. But we were off the road and stuck. But once we recovered the car, it didn't take long to repair it. So we started again at night. And I think the first stage was around the top end and then we we're going down Graven and a wheel just disappeared off the Oh no. Off the car. Well, just before kind of Jishig area. Yeah. And there's a big fank there, so we just kinda bump bump bump. Wait for it to finish. So that that wasn't very successful. But then after that, um so Doug Weir that I mentioned before, he'd he'd competed a couple of times before with um with other navigators. Firstly, um a chap called Gary Kennedy, who was from Salon, who lived in Aberdeen at the time. And then with uh, Linda, who's now his wife. Right. Um, the joke with them is that they would get married after they won the Mull Rally. Ah. But they never did win the Mull Rally. Well, not yet. But they not did, yet. Yeah. They did get married. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I think Linda wanted to drive. And I'd been navigating for Doug and other things. So he asked if I'd navigate. So we ne we competed together for from then. That was 1998 through to I think the last time was 2013. And we did all right. Yeah, we finished. The top ten a few times, won a class a few times. That's fantastic. A few trophies and a few bruises. Quite a lot of bills. Uh, yes, <laughs> it's no, not a cheap hobby. <laughs> no, no, not at for us what the sensation of rallying is like what is the the level of focus that you need what is the anticipation like can you and what are the smells like what can you describe the, the from getting into the car going up the line and and getting to the finish line what does it feel like yeah so there's a lot of preparation so if you're prepared or you're someone who likes to be prepared then generally you're going to start that very early so yeah. at the at the point where it starts and you get flagged away You'll have thought through all that. Yeah. But the thing that ramps up really quickly is the noise. 
Because, <laughs> you know, you're in Mull, it, a lot of rallies you won't get the chance to check the roads out, but in Mull you can do it as much as you like. Yeah. But you have to do it in a normal road car, so you're doing yeah. it quite slowly in a comfortable car. And then you get in something with rock-hard suspension and no soundproofing. And yeah. So the noise ramps up, and the smells are petrol, mainly. Yeah. Because um, the fuel lines are inside the car to protect them. Whereas in a normal road car, they're outside. That. Right, the car. okay. And, you know, they seep a little bit. So everything oh, smells of petrol. Everything rattles. Right. Everybody tries to talk to you because it's popular. <laughs> um, but that bit, because, especially when you've done it a few times, you know what's happening. You, you can think in your mind where you're going to go first. Okay. So you're going to start outside McGoughan's. Yeah. You're going to drive slowly up to Riverside. Yep. You know what you have to do in the way. You have to get your lights ready. You have to yeah. get your helmets on. You have to try and warm your tires up, and you've got yeah, all that. Yeah. Um, and then you, all hell breaks loose. The noise level goes up, and you know what happens is there's a countdown uh, light uh-huh. that tells you thirty seconds, fifteen, ten, and then it takes down five wee dots to green light, and then go. And by that time. You're still at that moderate noise and smell yeah. level, but then everything ramps up completely. And then your focus as a navigator has to be completely on your notes. Yeah. So delivering them at the right time. Yep. Feeling whether your driver is doing okay. Yeah. Pushing too hard or... I found as a navigator, I've never, ever tried to speed a driver up. That's yeah. his responsibility. Yes. But it's more my responsibility to say... You know, slow down a bit, take it easy. Yeah, watch out. Yeah. Remember, this is wet. Yeah. Which is normal in October. Yeah. Um, and that the bit when you're actually competing, it goes like a flash. Yeah. It completely, you know, the, the, the total competitive time on a mall rally is like two and a half or three hours or maybe longer. Right. And it seems to fly by. And the hanging about in between seems to take forever. Yeah. And and some people have an amazing memory. So Doug Weir, that I navigated for, has got... An amazing memory for every detail of every time we've passed over every bit of road. Wow. Which makes me wonder if he's ever listening to the pace notes at all, but I think he was. <laughs> Whereas for me, I'm just I'm just focusing on what's happening now, and yeah. then it goes out of my mind. Yeah. And it takes more to recall that. I remember um, when I came to Mull at first, uh, Leslie Hasty and I worked together, and I was driving the van from Dervig across to Tobermory back to, to the theatre and she was telling me about the rally so I said well what does the navigator do and so we're driving at you know, 30 miles an hour and below she's reading and, her notes. and she's telling me the notes of and there was like oh right I get it totally mm-hmm. so it was from you know the, the Mishnah Schlocks we did <coughs> like a rally style yeah. but very slow and it was, oh, that was amazing did it improve your time uh, yes 12 minutes <laughs> <laughs> in a big van uh, I think I actually did scratch that van that day but that's another story <laughs> Ah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. That's really, that's really clear. That's, that's lovely. Um, yeah, uh, some people listening to this will be wondering what what what's, what's the scope for the rally now because it's been through difficulties with kind of the, the insurance world changing, I believe. Yeah. Um, and what's what's the next, what's next for Mull Rally? So Mull Rally used to be open roads yeah. and, and most night rallies were the same. Mm-hmm. It was legal. Yeah. But there were some loopholes in the regulations that allowed it to be legal. Le- legal and one of those was not all the clocks had to be at the same time and that, and then in 1997 they changed right the law that made, made it much more controlled so therefore to go on to carry on using the roads the public roads the club that organized the rally at the time 2300 club had to had to get an act of parliament so, right yes 
So that came into force in 1990, and that was seven years, I think, ahead of anyone else in right. Britain. Northern Ireland, Isle of Man, Jersey, they, they've, because they have a local government, yeah. they've been able to do that. But in, in Britain, England, Scotland, Wales, no one else did it until 97 when the Jim Clark did it. And then nobody else did it right, again okay. uh, for a rally anywhere right. in Britain until a law change. But what was written into that um, legislation, that act, specific act of parliament that was, was copied for the Jim Clark rally, was a description of liability. Yeah, that was probably appropriate in the late eighties, but definitely not under the kind of litigation culture and uh, with supervision of that yeah, yeah. and and things to do with public access. Aye. So then, fast forward to kind of I think it was twenty fourteen in Jim Clark rally. They had a um, a very tragic accident where some bystanders, yeah, were sadly killed by a car going off the road, yeah. and that led to inquiries and I think potentially even. Um, insurance claims, compensation claims. So a more modern set of lawyers examined the legislation and realised that from an insurance point of view, it wasn't actually insurable. <gasps> it was unlimited liability, effectively. So, I didn't know that at all, right? So that meant, so not, nothing happened on Mull. I've never heard that term before. That's a bit of a scary <laughs> term. <laughs> uh, unlimited liability, also in terms of, you know, um, of responsibility. Yeah. So... Therefore, the, the, and the way insurance works in motorsport is that the organising body, they're called Motorsport UK, run a set of regulations and they also provide the insurance. So there's a blanket insurance policy, whether you are doing two cars racing around a field or 150 cars racing around Mull for three days. It's, it's, um, it's, it's the, the same policy. Yeah, so their um, insurance company stepped back from those closed public road under that kind of legislation. Yeah. Roughly at the same time, there was new legislation going through that would allow the, res the responsibility for closing the public roads for motorsport to be delegated right. to the local authority, which is great for us because it's a tourism thing and Argyll and Butte are all behind more visitors and coming. So, um, but that there was a kind of two-year gap when that didn't take place. So we ran different kind of rallies on private ground. They're a bit smaller and everything. But then 2019 came back with a bang. We, we have a space in the rally for 150 crews and we had 177 applicants in the first couple of hours. Oh, my God. Opening. So super popular. And, wow. you know, as everyone knows, it's almost impossible to get somewhere to stay. Yes, yeah. Unless you booked it the previous year. Yeah. So then we were in a position where we could... We had the legal and insurance cover we had an absolutely brilliant title sponsor in Batesons yeah very very supportive yeah. a competitor himself yeah um, very easy to deal with I find a loyal set of customers yeah plenty of volunteers to come and help yeah all ready to carry on and, and this coming year 2020 I'm trying to think where we are yeah we had some plans to just grow it a wee bit yeah to make it a little bit more popular around the world yeah. where we're going to engage some more professional PR. And this year it's not happening purely for coronavirus yeah. reasons. So there aren't any rallies really happening in the country, yeah. certainly not those that are integrated with the community. And would it have been at the full scale of the rally this year? It would have been, uh, right. and it might have even been slightly bigger. Wow. So now we have to think about what, what we do for next year. It's, it's uncertain. Yeah. I think um, there's, I don't think there's been any motorsport yet in the UK 
since lockdown that has involved spectators. Aye. And I don't think there's been any with more than one person in a car. Right, oh, of there course. There might be one in a couple of weeks, a kind of trial event. Right. You're wearing crash helmets, surely that's... Yeah, I know. And, you know, balaclavas and yeah, masks. Yeah, yeah. So I think that will probably be... Yeah. Okay, I mean, it's... You're in the car together for a long time, which is how it differs to, let's say, football or rugby yeah, or things yeah, where you're yeah. in close contact. Yeah, you're just all issue. Yeah, but what we... Um, what we see is it's still at massive demand. Yeah. It's really popular with regular visitors. So people come back year after year. And, you know, when we, as an organising team, acknowledge that we couldn't hold a rally this year and made the announcement, most of the messages we get back was firstly supportive. Mm. You know, it's the right yeah. thing to do. Um, but then from the visitors are like, we desperately still want to come to Mull because we love it. And we love coming to Mull in October. And there's a rally on too. That's great. So a lot of people are still planning on coming. Right. Okay. If the lockdown is okay, al- al- rules alive. Yeah. You know, we've seen this week or today Aberdeen, in Aberdeen has, yeah. has popped up again. That may or may not happen. Yeah. Other than perhaps the whole economy and people's disposable income being vastly it's reduced. It's a massive thing. Yeah. That's a massive thing. That that might be a risk, but I think we've got a loyal set of competitors. And and it stands it stands the kind of ebb and flow of health of the sport because it's not locked into like a championship where you've got people that are committed to doing yeah an event round right you know every other weekend and then they run out of money. It is the I'm going to say hobbyist. That sounds a little bit disrespectful, but it, people do it because they love to do it. Yes, they do it because it's a massive challenge. They're yeah. willing to save, save, and save. And yeah. the guys at the front of the field are spending a lot of money on yeah. this or, or searching for sponsors to help them. Yeah. So I think we'll come back stronger. We have, we have this opportunity for a few months to maybe look into making some minor changes. leaving Tobermory at the age of 16 you go to Robert Gordon College and Robert Gordon's Institute of Technology sorry because yeah. yeah, Georgia went to Grace which is part oh, of yeah, Robert Gordon's yeah. as well but uh, from the, the other side but aye so yeah after after um, after Tobermory you went to Robert Gordon's uh, Institute of Technology in Aberdeen that's right what so what to do at the age of 16 as well yeah so the context of that was that the um, we went to open high school aye to do our hires so 5th yeah. and 6th year um, so there's a kind of stage where people that weren't going to try to go to college university would leave school before they went there. Yeah. And then those of us that saw that as our future were required to do it. But in my fifth year, the um, school, the teachers were on strike. So we, oh. for most of our fifth year, we only went to school on Mondays and Fridays. Right. And I was never self-disciplined enough to fill in the gaps. Yeah. Um. So we used to go over on a f- Monday morning on the first ferry and then back on the first ferry on Tuesday okay. and then go and do a day trip on Friday. And there was three days in between. What we were, were you doing? Yeah. Well, we were given the curriculum and oh. the books, but I'm supposed to do home learning and home learning wasn't a thing. No. This year. Well, indeed, yeah. So as a result um, of that and me not being able to, being self-motivated or disciplined enough to 
to fill in the gaps. I didn't get very good grades mm. for my hires. Certainly not enough to get into university, which was my aim to go and do engineering at university. Mm. The desire to do that was just kind of technical interest. Also, my grandfather was an engineer. All oh, right, okay. He was a civil engineer. Oh. Um, so I was kind of, you know, motivated and inspired by him to be an engineer. Anyway, um, so I thought, right, I'll go back and do sixth year and try and do better. And then I went into sixth year and I kind of lost my way a bit more and a lot of my friends had left and uh, the school were still, oh, the teachers, sorry, the school wasn't in strike, the teachers were in strike. There was a union, one union was, mm-hmm. EIS, I think they were called, which covered most of the teachers. Mm-hmm. So uh, my parents had a bit of a heart to heart about what we're going to do and there was a whole set of options because it didn't look like it was going to do any better. Right. There were options that were maybe, and because I was only 16, I couldn't really work in the shop because no. it sold alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Which would, you know, if that had been an option, that might have been yeah. a good thing to do too. So it was, you know, get a job, and that job would be my career. Get a job as a holding position and then try again, and then we would try and go and find further education. So at very short notice, we found a, a slot in this um, um, course called uh, Engineering Technology RJT which was a degree course Uh uh, a bachelor of engineering so I think at two or three days notice uh, I went over to Oban and left school and uh, I was working also in Gannett's restaurant next to the shop just now the Spice Mall yes Uh, go and speak to Mike Fisher that ran that and tell him I was going he's like the season's still going yeah Um, and then pack my bags and uh, head to Aberdeen wow so I, I used to joke my folks about this. So, so going back to my dad and Bill Clegg as friends, they used to go and play golf every September for a week in Yorkshire Lovely. with another couple of mates. And uh, it was a lad's week away. And that was the same day that I needed to go to Aberdeen. Oh. So my dad was like, I'm not doing yet. But I don't it's know. It's the opposite direction to, from where yeah. I'm going. Yeah. But they gave me a lift as far as Stirling. <laughs> I got the train to Aberdeen. I'd never been to Aberdeen before. Oh, you know? man. I'd been... Perth, so my grandparents lived near yeah. Perth and my mum's side of the family, many of them were in Dundee, but I'd never yeah. been further north than that. So wow. got to Aberdeen, went to college. That was the course that was available. And I started that course. I didn't really grasp it in the first couple of years, so I'd stepped down to an HND. Right, okay. Which which I successfully passed. Brilliant. And worked for a couple of years. And one of the guys I was working for at the time explained to me what chartered engineering was and how you good professional development yeah. and they said um, so can I see your degree and I'm like I don't have one I don't have one he says right we're going to help you through a degree go and find a Fantastic. course make a proposal and this the company I was working for called Fermanite sponsored me to do so I went to Strathclyde and did third and fourth year of a engineering degree Bachelor of Engineering Honours Fantastic and then what was good about that was not only had a little bit more money than a lot of students, because I was working for them in the summer, yeah. and they were helping me financially, and I got some support from um, some institutes. Yeah. But also had a job to go to. And in that, Amazing. that was 93 when I graduated, and not everybody no. had a job to no. go into. So I was lucky. But just going back to the HND, when, when I finished my HND in 89, there was a real boom in the oil and gas in Aberdeen, and it was... Almost as simple as walking out of college and walking into a job. Because the RGIT at the time owned the Offshore Survival Centre. Ah. And so in the Christmas break, they gave us a free go 
at getting our survival certificate, which Fantastic. was a prerequisite for working offshore. On the rigs, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we basically all over Christmas got our certificates. And That's in, clever. The, in the kind of February half term break, we all did a bunch of interviews. Yeah. Basically 20 of us interviewed all the same companies. Yeah. And we all got offered more than one job. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, took a job at a company called Subsea Offshore, who are one of the experts in underwater inspection. So they'd fly, they'd sail around the North Sea with remotely operated submarines, looking at cool. oil and gas stuff. And my job was to, to take note of your computer system of, of the condition of it, which was great because I could see all these things that I'd only wow. seen in a theoretical environment before. Yeah. But now I've seen it on the screen yeah. and lots of experienced people around to say, ask some difficult questions and yeah, be yeah. that annoying student. Yeah. Is that oxidized? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was a, that was a real boost. And I think, wow. you know, that all you, you had to be a sensible human being and you had, you had to pass your H and D, but you got the job before you got your results. So the employer just called the college and said, is he going to pass or not? And uh, you had to have your offshore survival. And it was quite expensive at the time, more than a student could afford. Yeah. So that was a real boost. And that, so there wasn't a, a kind of conscientious decision to go into oil and gas industry. No. The key point was that I found a course to go at short notice, which happened to be in Aberdeen. Yeah. Which happened to do engineering in an oil and gas environment. And then been in it ever since. And uh, your employment took you out of the UK as well. Where was your first kind of foreign posting with work? Um, I think the first foreign one was in Norway and I was like, oh, how was that? Great, really good. I went, um, I joined a company called Coflexup who are French. They were relocating their UK office from London to Aberdeen and all the right. people in London didn't want to move to Aberdeen. So they had loads of vacancies and a bunch of us started at the same time more than the existing engineers could train. Okay. They made the high pressure flexible pipes and they had very specific design methods so a lot of stuff you'd learned before or studied it didn't really apply right so what they did was they distributed us around the different offices they had around the world to, to kind of spread the load of training mm. and i got the uh, i got the oslo a, a suburb called sanvika okay which is kind of on the western side of oslo fjord so i went out there first in april mm -hmm. And there was snow on the ground. And within 10 minutes, it was really hot. Yeah. Uh, and I was there until, I think it was about four months altogether. So right through to August, the whole summer. Brilliant. Oh. And, you know, Norwegians like their leisure time. Yeah. There's no working light. Yeah. Especially not in the summer. Yeah. So we'd start at eight in the morning and we were quite intensive learning. Some very, very um, highly analytical people trying to teach me and I'm, um, more of a kind of hands-on kind of person so it was a struggle but got it got there in the end teaching me about their engineering methods and then at four o'clock it's out the door and the main thing we did then was played football oh amazing so we played football in the park we played football on a little um island in the fjord with a bridge over to it that oh, many people picnicked and lovely um i don't know if you've heard of frogner park in oslo so no. it's got these amazing sculptures of humans, there's, oh. a, there's a very famous um, sculpture of a baby that's doing a kind of ballet move like this. Oh, but some right. sculptures are multiple humans all melded in together. Wow. So it's it's kind of like the Hyde Park of Oslo. So we used to get the train into 
from Oslo them. after work, oh. play football, go to the pub, spend the I've got a financial uplift for being away from home and wow. all that went in the pub and I was like, it's, it's quite expensive. It's quite expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really good. And, and I don't know if it's typical in French companies, but basically they like to send French people around the world yeah. to get lots of experience. So although I was in Oslo and, and meeting a lot of Norwegians, I met a lot of French people who in turn had a lot of international experience. Um, so it was really good to broaden the horizons. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, worked on some interesting projects that I'd only read about trying to understand the challenges of that's great putting things in deep water yeah Norway were ahead of the game in terms of yeah. really deep water like hundreds and hundreds of meter water depth what are the challenges of it? is it pressure is it pressure temperature so it's cold of course going so deep yeah, yeah. so mo mostly when oil comes out of a reservoir it's under pressure and at high temperature and it's a mix of oil and gas and water and oh. sludge and everything but generally, if it cools down to somewhere like ambient, it'll solidify, Aye. so it won't flow. So one challenge is that you've got to keep this oil flowing uh -huh. to the processing facility. And if it's 600 meters up, that's a pressure drop. Right, okay. And a temperature drop. And there's external so resistance pressure. resistance huge. Yeah. So, um, so you quite often have heating, so you've underwater heating on the, on the equipment to keep the keep the fluid warm and do you have pumps as well within that yeah or? more recently yeah subsea pumps subsea separation what about our Archimedes screw thing with yeah. that as well so, so the kind of the, the cutting edge of technology for really deep water long way from the processing facility is a separation facility so right on the seabed you'll have a, effectively a, what would normally be in the top of an oil rig yeah that will separate the oil, water, gas, sludge, probably into just a liquid and a gas. And then the gas will flow itself, but then you can pump the water on the mm. oil. And it's it's hard to pump when it's all mixed up. You get a lot of cavitation in the pumps and everything. Yeah. yeah. But if you separate it and then you, you pump the uh, pump the liquid, which is where most of the money is. Yeah. Um, the challenge with that is you have to get the electricity down there to power those pumps. And the ultimate aim is that you take one of those streams, so let's say the gas stream, and you generate the electricity with that gas yeah. underwater. To power that? Yeah. The Fantastic. challenge with that is you need oxygen. Okay. And exhaust. Yeah, where does your exhaust go? Does it just go into the water? No, I haven't quite got it yet. Right. So what? most of the time now, it's a, either a fluid-driven pump Okay. So you pump water, which drives an impeller, which drives yeah. pump, or um, an electric pump. Is, is that not breaking the second law of thermodynamics? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, that's amazing. Um, so, I, so I've been listening to a podcast called The Myth, Legend and Lore Podcast by Siobhan Clark. And the one, when I was listening to this morning, she was talking about uh, Sigurd's saga I think it was Sigurd's saga something like that and it was a lot about it's where a lot of the, the Hobbit stuff comes right. comes from with broken swords and dragons and hills and lava and, and fire and jewels and all that and part of me was wondering if those myths go back to a very 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 early, early time in humans because we're where did dragon myths in the east come from somewhere else? But the dra there's a there's a different different dra kind of dragon in the east, I think, right. compared to the ones that we have in Western lore. And I was wondering if it is something from very very early human memory of volcanic activity. Yeah, I, and I don't know, but I can't imagine that we were. I mean, we are alive when the, there is volcanic activity still, mm -hmm. but 
I wonder if the, the dragon was notionally that the, occasionally a, a cave would spew lava out. Could do. And or like it that. could it be um, a methane seep that ignited. Ah. So there's a... Uh, so is it the Az- Azerbaijan is one of the biggest Yeah, the fire cults, of yeah. course, yeah. So that is natural seeps of oil and gas. Yeah. And it there's a place, I think it's in Kazakhstan called the Gates of Hell. Yeah. So it's basically a big crater. Yeah. And methane seeps into it, ignited. And I think it was deliberately ignited. Right. To burn out the methane. Of yeah. course the methane was still fueling twenty, thirty years later. Yeah, yeah. And those kind of things can you know, if you don't understand the geology of it, which wasn't really understood until 150 years ago or something, yeah. you could easily create myths and legends from it. Well, that's Zoroastrianism. That's that 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 um, comes from from that part of the world, and it was about relationship to fire, I believe, and mm-hmm. um, it's one of the first monotheistic religions. And it's uh, really, ah, uh, it's so interesting. All of that, yeah. This, you know, we're yeah, we're part of a big system. Yeah. Um, Working with a French company then, when did the opportunity come to, to go and work in France? Was that the same company? Or? It was, yeah. That, so that was with Coflexive. So they um, they merged with an American company called Stena Offshore. Not Stena Stairlifts, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Stena Oil Lifts. Stena Oil Lifts. <laughs> um, so Stena were leaders in various things, but one, one of them was the technology of reeling rigid pipes. Traditionally, the way you lay a pipeline offshore is you send... 12 meter lengths of pipe oh. out to a barge and they're welded together and laid down the seabed in a continuous process. And it takes a long time. Yeah. So each weld might take, depending on the technology, it might take anywhere between seven or eight minutes yeah. or an hour. And also you're doing it in this environment where it's quite harsh, it's moving. Yeah. And there's pressure time. Yeah. So what's Stena, uh, or it's a predecessor, but it became Stena. So they invented this um, reeled pipe technology. So basically, they'd do all the welding onshore on a yeah. flat piece of land next to sea and out to seven or eight kilometres long. And then they'd reel the pipe onto the, a ship and then they'd sail offshore and unreel it on the seabed. Wow. One of, one of the challenges with that is that you're actually putting deformation into the pipe. Because you're kinking it. As you're, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're bending it around. But the flexible pipes that Coflexit made and this reel pipe that... Um, Stena made were chasing the same market. So this merger of companies was never very successful. Uh, um, well, no, it wasn't never successful. Initially, it was quite a cultural challenge. Clash, so, yeah. So myself and a few others were seen as having a kind of foot in both camps because we, we were employed by the French people. We, and we knew all their Frenchness <laughs> and we knew their technology, but we weren't French. Yeah. Um, so there's myself in um, Aberdeen and a lad called Gerstala, who's a Norwegian in the Norway office, and a guy called an Irishman called Robert Sullivan, but he was, he was effectively an, an Australian in the Australian office. So we were tasked with trying to bridge this cultural gap. Right. And one of the core difficulties was the R and D centre for these flexible pipes was in a small place called Latre, which is on the Seine in Normandy. Um. And I think, so at that point, the Seine meanders quite a lot. The trade French for the strait, and it was the only straight piece of, <laughs> of river. Um, a small town, five or 6,000 people. I used to teach English in Courbevoie. Oh, so that yeah. tells you that where that is. Yeah, like curved just along the road, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we were sent out there for a couple of years to um, try and bridge the gap between the project offices, which were mainly the kind of Stena offshore 
British and American culture and the technology side, which was the French. And we tried to learn French. I mean, the only exam I ever failed at high school was French. Oh, right. Old grade French. Wow. And I was never really that good at it. Languages are made for speaking, not for exams. Yeah, I mean, old grade French exam is terrible. You're in a booth and you're trying to do the... I still don't know where the swimming pool is. <laughs> no, nor, nor the Sandicat initiative. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that, that meant going to live in Normandy. Oh, great. So I'd been there a few times before and it's a beautiful countryside. Um, and I, I think I was at 28 at the time. Mm. It's not a place for 28 year old. No. no. So we all lived in Rouen. Okay. Which is a brilliant city. Yeah. The, the core of Rouen is still, it was rebuilt after the war mainly in the medieval style, and the, but the, the surroundings are all very industrial. Yeah. It's a big city, there's half a million people or something. It's yeah. big, I don't know, what's that? Bigger than Edinburgh, not as big as Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to get into Paris. So um, so we, we tried all sorts of methods. So I, I got quite good at very specific French for things to do with flexible pipes. But because I was learning French with uh, with a Norwegian and an Irish-Australian, and another Australian lad came over, from someone, a teacher wasn't really that committed. My right. French, conversational French, didn't really progress right. very much. But the, the background of that, where they had the factory in the R&D centre, was it used to be a naval dockyard. Mm-hmm. Probably predating um, Second World War. And then in the 60s, when it when they didn't need it there, I mean, it was miles from the sea, um, Latre. It's got to be about 50 miles from the sea. But it's ocean-going river. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and they moved it all over to Brest or somewhere like that, okay. San And then the French government were basically giving away the sites to industries. And Coflexa was originally built, founded on government investment. But it meant like there were a lot of people working there whose families had worked in that shipyard and they'd never been anywhere else. Ah, right, okay. And what I found out, they'd felt fault. They were quite in, interested in these people from yeah. away. yeah. Uh, but they fell into two camps, and one was, we're not going to tell you anything about this place because you live in Rouen. That's that's the city, you know. That's we never go there. And the other half were desperate to tell you all the little ins and outs of living in that part of the world. So, this um, I got a two-hour um, lesson from one of my colleagues about where to buy your baguette. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Because they bake at different times of the day. And also, some people bake from frozen. Yeah, which is never any good. Okay. I never found any of them. Uh, that didn't good. enter the conversation. Well, that was, that was a Parisian well. problem. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's, which way do you go home? I said, I'll oh, go this way along the river, and, and if the traffic's bad, I'll go that way. So it's okay, this one, this one. He got the big map out oh. there. But not on the main road, it's up the side street. You know? So there'd be people like that. And then it took a long time for us to kind of integrate yeah. properly with, yeah. the, with the guys. But eventually, um, one of the gentlemen that was working with, Christophe, who'd his family had been there for generations, invited us to a barbecue at his country house. And he he hand drew a map to this little house in the oh, middle of, oh. up a valley, down a farm track, cross a bridge, park here, walk there. All Much like you did get here today. And I got there and <laughs> everyone was hammered. Oh my goodness. He made Calvados. Oh yeah. So, you know, we're a few hours into this night and we're all looking at each other. And we've all come in separate cars and that. Oh my God. We're not getting home. No, we're not going home. So we, but, you know, eventually they become really friendly. And then yeah. um, we introduced the concept of having a Christmas party. Oh, nice. Yeah. A couple of weeks before Christmas, went to the boss and said, what's the plans for the Christmas party? Oh, we don't do that. Okay. 
would would you fund it if we organised it? Yeah, no problem. So yeah, went around asking people, what restaurant do you think would work? And um, remember our, our secretary for the team I was in, I, I thought, well, you've lived here forever. What's your favourite restaurant in uh, Rouen, which is 30 miles away? Yeah. Oh, I haven't been to Rouen since I was a teenager. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very strange. But anyway, we, we built up a lot of good friendships, good working relationship in the end. And then the company, you know, acquired other companies and this whole integration got bigger and bigger. Yeah. And but yeah, that was, I think it was nearly two years I was there at Normandy. And, and then you got to Paris as well. And then I got to Paris a bit later, yeah. Oh, so man. that was, uh, that was with BP. So I, I, right. I joined BP in 2000. BP have got a big centre in a place called Sunbury and Thames near Heathrow. Okay. So they've got three or 4,000 BP employees there. So wow. I started there in the, in this kind of technical support department and they allocated me to a project which was in Angola. Wow. So I went to join that project. How did you find Angola? I liked it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, by the time I got there, the first time I went, it was probably 2003 or 2004. Okay. It was a stable place. Yeah. And they were on a very upwards Trajectory. track yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of the wealth of some people. Yeah. But still a lot of signs of, of civil war, you know. Yeah. Lots of people, limbs missing. Yeah. Buildings that were riddled with bullet holes. Yeah. Um, street crime. Yeah. So m most of the time I was in Angola, we'd be either in Luanda, which is the capital, which is like most African cities, is chock-a-block with traffic. You spend a lot of time in traffic looking. Mm -hmm. But the rules are very clear. You, you, you had a compound where you stayed in yeah. them, but either for families, there was a kind of secure compound with family-sized houses. I was always a visitor, so I didn't live there. So it'd be in a staff house or a hotel. Yeah. You didn't leave this boundary. Yeah. There was a kind of BP-owned taxi system yeah. with four by fours, which you realised they all had guns under their seats. And, yes. Yeah. Um, you go to the yard, you go to the quayside, you go yeah. and visit other offices and stuff like that. And yeah. and some people really liked that life, that expat life, and it was pretty lucrative. And me as a visitor, it wasn't lucrative. We weren't mm. there long enough to get to get involved. But what I found was the Angolans that worked for us down there, they were incredibly ambitious. And mostly backed up with capability. Fantastic. And if they were more than 30 years old, they'd, they'd done all their technical training in right. somewhere Soviet. Oh, really? Gosh. Yeah, usually what? Azerbaijan, yeah. sometimes Siberia, sometimes Shetland. Yeah. Places like that. So they kind of, you know, relationship they knew their stuff, with communists. Yeah. yeah. So they knew their stuff. So I spent, I worked on Angola projects 2003 through to 2011. Right. Spent a lot of time going there or waiting to go there because of visa issues. Mm -hmm. In my second project, Angola project, I lived a mile from my office in South London. So okay. the contractor we were with, um, we'd awarded this big contract, a contractor called Sub C7, which many mall people have or do worked mm -hmm. for them. They're one of the biggest subsea construction contractors. And their office just happened to be a mile from my house. But quite often I'd go to work on a Monday morning not knowing if I was coming home or going to Angola that <laughs> evening. Um, that's stressful it, it's stressful uh, it's did you have your, were you married at that point uh, well? Uh, well we were together and um, latterly my daughter was born right she was born in 2010 okay and that was the time I realised this is not uh, it's not sustainable no and even as a couple it's not no, very at good all, no. even as a single guy it's not very no. good yeah. and even trying to manage a team so most of my team were in the UK so you didn't know if you're going to have a project meeting the next day or you'd be in a flight 
So, and I felt I'd kind of done plenty of traveling around. And yes. I went I went to the boss who's the vice president of projects and said, like, quite fancy something different. And he's yeah. like, yeah, okay, well, you can go to Azerbaijan. I'm like, no, I meant something different. I meant yeah. um, staying at home. Yeah. But sorry, going back to Paris. Uh, so the, the first project we did in Angola, we awarded the main contracts to a couple of companies who are based in Paris. And BP's style of running projects then was you'd send your management team to the contractor's office. Yep. And you would isolate basically the project from the HQ. Wow. Just go and get this thing, produce an oil in three years' time and wow. don't tell me when it's not going to happen. So wow. it's good because it focuses you and it, and it really tight. motivates. Almost a franchise in a way. In a way, yeah. yeah. And you put a lot of reliance on the contractor, so you have to make sure that they don't suffer, they don't yeah. lack for skills or resources. And it all happened quite quickly. It's like, okay, I'm going to work in Leatherhead, which is where the previous contractor was, and then it was go to Paris. And go to Paris with um, not really knowing what, what the deal was as a person, as an expat. Eventually got that resolved and turned out that we had a reasonable budget for property. Fantastic. So those with families would go to Saint-Germain-en-Laye where the English and American schools were. And yeah. those without would go in the centre. I managed to get an apartment on the... It was the borders of the 7th and the 15th. Oh. Avenue Souffren. Very nice. Which is kind of the garden front of the Eiffel Tower. So you stand oh, yeah. in the Eiffel Tower looking towards... Uh, yeah. Uh, look at the uh, the trunk Invalides, there. Uh, uh, not no, the other way. Um, yeah. Inland. Invalides. Ecole Militaire. Ecole Militaire, yeah. And it's out in the, in the right a couple of, couple of streets. I there. looked at a flat there. <laughs> and it was my mate Sarah and I were looking for somewhere to stay together. And if we'd gone for it, I would have had to stay on a couch. For, <laughs> and it was like, nah. Uh, oh, no. That's, yeah. So that lovely That was time. good. So that, uh, I was with my first wife at the time. And she'd work in London for a couple of weeks and then come over to Paris for a couple of weeks and she um, she joined a more kind of expatty social arrangements yeah. which never really suited me at all. They were, they were occupied by people who, who were very socially aware, social, right. social climate aware and they wanted to. That's tedious. Uh, it wasn't me at all. So, so right. um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of British people out there in other walks of life yeah, yeah, and most of whom we found in a couple of pubs, the Old Alliance, and the Old Alliance, and the Highlander. Yeah. I actually only went to the Old Alliance once. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. But I was. I was there for, for France. Mm-hmm. I was there for, and we had international pals, yeah. and so we were. I learned how to swear in Spanish. <laughs> but, but the fifteenth, the the area just south of where we were, the fifteenth was really nice and a bit more residential yeah. and also touristy. So that's kind of where we hung out. Nice. Most of the time, and then you got weekends away. And, Brittany, oh gosh! No, I didn't get a chance to do any of that. Really, I was because I was a student, and it's just you know we had one weekend in Burgundy, mm-hmm. and that was magic. But uh, beyond that, no, I was very much in Paris all the time. But yeah, we got plenty of visitors. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's it. Because you know we're the best location, and yeah. we had a we had a car. Oh, amazing! So we could go pick people up from the airport. And Brilliant! It was really good. I mean, it's it's quite eye opening. Um, the difference between Normandy and Paris. I mean, Very within Paris, yeah. it's not the same country as France. So the pe- people's outlook isn't. I I felt that everyone in Paris, whether they were natives, or expats, or temporary visitors, like us, all, all everybody had a strong awareness of their place yeah. in life. And 
perhaps even something like a class system and which R and D smart you lived in was one of those. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. Um what you did for a living. Yeah. Mine. The sequence <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the sequence that you invited people for dinner and we were never yeah. great ones for bringing people around the house. We'd rather go out and you know, I found it quite stressful because actually yeah. you couldn't relax, you know. That's why I personally didn't when we were socialising, it was mainly with the people working with or that kind of yeah. similar people to us yeah. that were there for a project and didn't have to buy into commitment to Paris. Yeah, I, I, there are many things that are stressful about that kind of style. I mean, when I was there, I was more, we were international students just having a laugh. And, you know, the first dinner party I had was, my flat was, you know, the size of this room. It was a bathroom, a bedroom and a, a kitchen space and a cupboard that had a bed in it. Um, <laughs> and my first, it was my first couple of nights at school and we had uh, Swedish pals over for dinner. Mm. And that was lovely. And it was like, we were all like, oh man, what is this place? What are we doing? Yeah. Uh, it was really, I think that's what, for me, Paris has always been the connection with people from other countries as well. Yeah. And well, we made a lot of that because the, yeah. the team we put together come from all parts of BP. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a few of us British and you know, a lot of Scots that come from, down from Aberdeen yeah. to work and uh, so a couple that are still really good friends and a, a, a lad from Houston who was actually his family from Nicaragua oh, wow who met while he was working for with us in Paris oh, yeah. his wife she was from the Alps so right. half French half Italian right and they got married and now they live back in Houston now with right. these multinational children oh, that's lovely yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess we, ne we never completely cut our connections with our home in yeah. South London. So, yeah. you know, I drive back every couple, maybe th every three or four weekends. So yeah. London's been home then for the last, how long have you been? Nearly 20 years. Gosh. Since I moved down. It's longer than I ever lived in Tobermory. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it. It's different. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and I think, it, I, I like the contrast, you know. I'm not sure if I could ever live here again. Luckily, it's a question that never comes up. Yeah. You know, it's it's not um, at the moment something I could do. No. Uh, so, and it, it has come up in the past, yeah. you know, and decided not to. But I think what we're not in the centre of London. No. So we're beyond the tube, which is oh right, thing. okay, aye. And um, you know, Carshalton, the the village. Um, for those listening, that was my inverted commas fingers. Yeah. The village we're in is is a village, a true village that's been expanded subsumed on. into Greater London, yeah. and we're not far from the edge of Greater London. But do you not cycle into work? Ah, uh, yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, well, it's, it's fantastic to have that. That's... Yeah, and it's twelve miles flat. Half of it's in cycle lanes. Perfect. So it's fine. I don't think I could cycle twelve miles from Tomori to Calgary every day, for example. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so that, you know, the choices of those things, um, I think where we are is the right balance of being close to the city, lots of options, things to do, yeah. but also not busy, busy, busy city. You know, we, we know. And how is it for the kids? You know, they love coming here. Yes. And I think some of that, a significant portion of that is a contrast. Yeah. My daughter particularly loves coming here. My son's quite a home bird and he always wants to go home. Yeah. But I think where we are, you know, because we, the kids go to the nearest primary school. It's it's a good school. It was top of our list, but it's walkable. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that means that they get to know all the people that live near us at the yeah. same school and class. So it's, we got a kind of good social bunch. And, and during this lockdown, 
when we haven't been going out or going to other yeah. people's houses, we've been meeting in the park. Oh, nice. You got this beach, social yeah. distance. And we have lots of parks around. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the right balance, I think, for me. And it's where my wife grew up. So she's got a lot of her family. Rootedness there. Really close, which you need with young children these days. And two working parents. So. That's fab. Yeah. I think we've got a lot there. I, th I would love to talk more about um, the importance of the shop and that, but I think maybe see if we can do a live event around that. That yeah. could be really nice to be so specifically focused on brands, you know, <laughs> um, and do it as a, an online live event. Yeah. Because uh, the amount of people that have worked there over the years. You want to pin them all down, yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice yeah, to see if we can draw a few people together, and especially, you know, the loss of Margaret recently as well. Yeah. It'd be nice to, yeah. to mark. It'd be interesting for me to hear people's memories, especially the older generation of their memories of being a customer yeah. in the shop because I have a very strong idea of what it was like from when I was a teenager yeah. and maybe helping the back shop and then when I was 18, 19 here in the, yeah. in the summer holidays and serving yeah. but the kind of what the shop did from then even till now hasn't changed very much but yeah. prior to that there was tropical fish for a short moment in time <laughs> yeah. booze and nails booze and nails yeah yeah that's uh, Jimmy Nail's brother uh, yeah <laughs> Well, Duncan, thank you so much. That's very, very much appreciated. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Duncan. It was so good to catch up in person at last. You've offered a really different take on life here and your adventures beyond these shores, which I really appreciate. As I said earlier, do take a look at the website to see Duncan's bogey race map and indeed pace notes. And just a quick reminder that we've got a live Zoom event on sports on the islands on Friday the 22nd of January, tomorrow at 8pm. You can book tickets via the website or catch up with it on social media. If you're interested in oral histories of communities beyond the shores of Mull and associated islands, I'm going to be working on a new podcast series soon with my mate Tim Morozzo, who's a very fine photographer. We've landed an artist-in-residence post with Glasgow Life, and we'll be chatting to the people of Sight Hill, Deniston, and Hag Hill about their lives and communities. I'll be doing the podcasting, and Tim will be taking photos of them. I think we're going to call it Tales for the East. Do keep your ears peeled for it, if it's the sort of thing that interests you. I'll tell you more about it in the, the coming months, for sure, anyway. But fear not, there's lots more what we do in the winter to come. And there's so many more people to talk to and so many, many more tales to be told. A chance encounter in a graveyard a few weeks ago will lead to a conversation that I'm very excited to have in a few weeks' time. And I literally just got um, an email through there from someone saying about a connection which could be really interesting. I'm sure many of you will be very keen to hear more about it. But more on all of that as it comes about. I'm also going to start playing around with the music for the linking bits inside the podcast a bit more. I've always stuck to variations on the podcast theme, but I think I may just start noodling around with other things to keep it fresh. We also have podcast merch. Your actual podcast merchandise. What we do in the winter, tin mugs. If you're interested in buying a mug, please follow the link at the bottom of the webpage. They cost £10 plus postage to the UK. There's a bit more for elsewhere in the world, but we can deliver them if you live in the north of Mull. Also, I've got a survey running to allow me to gauge how you engage with the podcast, which will come to an end at the end of this month, which is very useful because it allows me to build a picture of the listenership, how you relate to the podcast and things you're interested in. So if you've got two minutes spare and if you're so inclined, I'd really love to hear from you via our survey. You can find the link on our site too. 
And if you want to support the podcast, please feel free to click on the donate tab on what we do in the winter.com. But don't worry if you can't or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and went gallivanting with us than not. And on that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. I really appreciate it. A mug is coming at you soon. Merci bien aussi à nos amis en France. Ça m'a beaucoup étonné. C'était génial. Merci. Vraiment merci. One last thing. If you could leave a star review on whichever platform you listen to, I'd be really grateful. It helps to spread the word about the project and it makes the stories available to more and more listeners. As ever, thank you to all of you who reach out to say hello. Especially at this time, it really makes my day to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I hope that life has been kind to you. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Dougald Campbell, who passed away at the end of last year. It was an honour to get to talk with him. It's an encounter that will stay with me for many years to come. Take care, wherever you are, listener. Morin thang. Shinakate.